I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Gerald Foose, a.k.a. The Voyeur. Who is Gerald Foose? Well, he's a man who in the 1960s bought a motel with a strange purpose. He bought it so he could renovate a catwalk running along the ceilings of the rooms in order to observe the tenants without their knowledge. He spent the next 30 years consistently observing and cataloging the happenings of these people as they came and went, kept meticulous notes, and then one day he made a decision that would forever bring him out of the shadows and into the light. Tom doesn't seem derogatory enough. What about Creepy Pete? Or how about Buckhead Gerald? Yeah, Peeping Tom is like, that's some Back to the Future shit of just like the the teenage rapscallion from down the street who certainly this is not appropriate or good, but it's just like, ah, little Jimmy, you Peeping Tom. This is, that word just doesn't describe the the sheer malevolence of what we're talking about here. Have you ever seen someone on the bus and wondered about what their private life was like? Have you ever witnessed a chance encounter of two strangers and pondered what their future held? Well, Gerald Foose is a man haunted by these missed connections and tantalized by the ever-alluring call of strangers' bedrooms. So much so that he did something unthinkable. Gerald Foose bought Manor House Motel in Aurora, Colorado. He owned it for close to 30 years. He bought it in 1966 and began to transform this place of business into a private fishbowl where he could observe the human condition writ large. But Gerald Foose is not the only character in this story. You see, without a man called Gay Talese, we probably never would have even heard of Gerald. Gay Talese was born February 7th, 1932, and is one of the most acclaimed journalists of his era. Having written infamous articles about Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra, and was published by the New York Times, Esquire, and a variety of publishers. He cemented himself as a person who takes the written word seriously. In 1964, he published The Bridge, the building of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, a book that would cement him amongst the literary elite of journalism. In 1966, he would take a position writing full-time for Esquire, where he would pen the article Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, which is widely regarded as one of the most influential magazine articles of all time. Also, can we just talk for a second about how dope the title Frank Sinatra Has a Cold is? It's a good title. It's a really good title. I've, I've, I've said it I've said it before on previous episodes. Uh, as a matter of fact, the the um, dating ring episode. But uh, it's it's I I'm not a big reader of these sort of uh, these these sort of magazine feature stories. Uh, I'm just I, I'm not a follower. I'm not a reader. Uh, but it's it's an interesting art form, and every time I read one of them, I'm like, this is this is super well written. But it's it's not it's it's it, in in many ways it's like an Arby's. It's like you don't go there often, uh, and you know it's not something that enters your mind. You never think to go there, but when you do go there, you're like, this is some high quality shit. I don't know that you and I have the same reactions to Arby's, but I appreciate that you are someone who is constantly. Attempting to work Arby's into casual conversation to get a rile out of me. That's what I respect about you, Andrew Price. 
1971, he published Honor Thy Father, a book about the travails of the Bonanno crime family. It was a bestseller and even eventually made into a TV movie. Possibly the most salacious book that Talese published was in 1981, titled Thy Neighbor's Wife. The book is an exploration of sexuality in America after World War II through the 1970s. In prep for the book, Talese lived at a clothing-optional sandstone retreat where he engaged in orgies, debauchery, and sexual exploration. So I feel like we should kind of talk a little bit about Yay Talese as a as a guy for a minute. Is there anything? Um, it's it's interesting. Is there anything? Is there any other than like comic book artist or or writer or like maybe like photographer, maybe even like architect? These are the these. This is the short list of of jobs in addition to like uh in addition to journalists that they have such a pervasive effect on culture and yet you have no idea who they are yeah yeah i i appreciate you throwing comic book person in there i don't know that that's true but i appreciate you putting that in there um, well I mean, I, but it's the thing that it's the first maybe thing like maybe it's like the first urban thing that comes design up- you know, like maybe yeah. like mm-hmm. somebody who designs like bus routes or like, you know, uh, turning lanes, like thing parking lot, you know, the like the person who designs how the parking lines go in a parking lot like that affects yes. everybody so much. And like city and infra- infrastructure planners. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's a great book on on um, <laughs> city infrastructure called The Works which is just a it's a coffee table book that shows you how everything in large cities works and how it's built, like how streetlights function with the sensors underneath the street and how they're implanted and stuff. Very, very, very fascinating book. Hmm. That sounds right up my alley. I, I have I have no knowledge of that, but that sounds like something I would enjoy reading. Yeah, it's called it's called The Works. Um, so Gay Talese is this dude who uh, is as you can tell from the kind of stuff that we've been listing off these many accolades, he straddles the world between hard nosed traditional journalist and kind of the burgeoning literary article writer type journalist where it's, it's, you know, I think he as a guy views himself more as like the beat reporter out on the street, see asking hard questions. Um, But his execution and his fan base is probably more towards what you would think of as like the kind of East Coast elite, right? He lives in a brownstone in New York. He, his dad was a tailor, so he wears these really nice suits all the time. Um, he's the type of guy that like, even in the 1980s was wearing like well-tailored suits and like 1950s fedoras, but like not in a cringy way, like in a, wow, that guy's got money way. He looks good um, in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, what, know, so and he, what a name too. That's just, that's such a... That's just that name is just perfect for that person. I'm sure it must have been hard growing up with that first name. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I wasn't even talking about that. Like, obviously, there's there's like a a stigma of like making fun of, you know, like the fucking meet the parents. Yeah. Gaylord Fokker joke or whatever. Um, yeah. Hopefully we've somewhat moved past that now. But yeah, in the 80s, he's, yeah. he's probably probably wasn't. Or not even in the 80s, in the, you know, in the 40s when he was a kid, probably, probably wasn't yeah. the, or no, actually, that was probably fine too, because it, it meant something different back then. Yeah, it was probably in the 70s and 80s where he was getting the, the hardest of it. Yeah, so he's this kind of guy who, you know, basically builds this world for himself, this career, 
being a simultaneous investigative reporter and also carving out this very commercial niche of salacious topics or you know i mean look you just look at the trajectory right he starts writing about infrastructure and then gets involved with celebrities and then quickly figures out oh the way to make money is you write about sex and crime okay i'm gonna write a book about the mob and then i'm gonna write a book about sex and in you know in the in the kind of heyday of those journalistic kind of deep dive nonfiction books it serves him very well he makes a lot of money um and yeah, he, was like, 19- he was like the one man vice of the 80s yeah totally that's very it's a very good point yeah like he he totally could have been if there was a vice in 1984 or whatever gay talise is the person you would have hired to like run it you know what i mean yeah um and so and he really you know the other most of his books were kind of in a literary academia people who like these types of works way prior to thy neighbor's wife and um honor thy father those are the two books that really kind of like burst him out onto onto a mainstream uh kind of level of acceptance and he did the late night circuit for thy neighbor's wife and he did the daytime circuit for thy neighbor's wife and like was on tv all the time talking about like you know either the bonanno crime family or you know what it was like living in this basically swingers resort for a long time and he was married at that point and like basically you know low-key had an agreement with his wife where he was just like i'm gonna go do this stuff because i have to for the book and she was like uh all right (laughs) that's another interesting thing as well this uh i mean maybe this still exists but i don't see it that much but this idea of especially in the you know the 60s and the 70s this idea of these journalists who sort of like their own personalities were as interwoven in the stories that they told as the stories you know your you know gonzo journalism your hunter s thompson's where they're just like you know they're not somebody going around just like reporting on something they're like in it like fully they've they've yeah. immersed themselves in the lifestyle yeah completely and the, and their work almost becomes like autobiographical like they've made themselves a character in their story yes yeah and very intentionally so like we're going to talk about it a lot over the course of this episode but gay talise seems like somebody who very quickly became media savvy and figured out that writing is only half the battle writing is only 50 percent of what you need to do in order to be a successful person in america and have longevity and be able to support yourself off of your work right like i mean just thirty thousand foot view the dude went from writing about a bridge to very quickly being like ah yes frank sinatra you know what i mean like he very quickly was just like where is the money how am i gonna continue to do this okay cool i'll go over there and that's not a bad thing that's just somebody reading the room and having specific desires for where they want their career to go, right? I did the bridge thing. Bridge thing was nice. People liked the bridge thing. Uh, maybe not such enthusiasm about the bridge thing. Like maybe people aren't like super into bridges. Like there's certain people that are super into bridges, but like for the most part, I feel like most of us, we drive over them. It's like, oh, I got over that body of water and then we're done. That's, we wipe our, we wash our hands of the bridge. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm going to move on to something that, uh, is a little bit more resonant with the, with the greater population. In 1979, prior to Thy Neighbor's Wife release, Talese optioned the rights to make a film off of it, 
for $2.5 million. At the time, this was the largest single payment for the rights to a film adaptation of a book ever. In 1987, Gay Talese received a letter from a man claiming to have something that might interest him. This man was Gerald Foose. He explained to Talese how he renovated a motel to have a high-pitched roof, how he had built an observation platform, and how he had done all of this with the assistance and permission of his wife. Gay Talese had to see it for himself. GG Foose Foose, you're doing it wrong, man. You don't just go out there and tell people what you're doing. If you've got a secret observation dungeon, keep that you keep that shit under wraps, buddy. H H H Holmes, he had a murder hotel, and he never told anybody about that shit. And he's he's fine. He's still alive to this day. <laughs> the two men kept in close contact for thirty years. They corresponded often with Gerald Foose, eventually showing Gay Talese all of his meticulously typed notes. Gerald did all of this under the condition that Gay would not go public and would not reveal his identity. However, in the mid-2010s, he had a change of heart. The two men, nearing their 80s at this point, didn't want all of this work to be lost. They wanted people to know what happened. And so, Gerald agreed to let Gay use his name and write about him for The New Yorker. I mean, joking aside of what I just said, like what, like what, I have my, my thoughts obviously, but what compels somebody, I mean, this is obviously, I mean, may, maybe it was a different time and so maybe it wasn't, because this is like a dark secret. This is like, you are committing so many crimes. So maybe it was just slightly thought of differently back then where he really could convince himself that it was some kind of observational experiment or something like that but, but what convinces somebody to go tell somebody about this like just go admit to anybody about these horrible crimes and then just be like but don't tell anyone though our secret pinky swear buddy boy yeah i mean i think that there's i think there's a lot to unpack there and i'm a little reticent to start unpacking who i'm a little reticent to unpack who gerald foos is underneath the surface of just like fuck this guy he's a pervert until we get a little further in the stories because there are some twists and turns that I don't I want to discuss those as they're happening but I think if you think about it from a perspective of that the human condition is largely built around communication that it it kind of makes sense like it doesn't on one level why like I don't really understand why you would tell anyone but it's kind of the same thing of like why serial killers leave maps to their victims and why, um, you know, at the end of their lives, people who've committed these horrible atrocities confess. And, you know, like the woman who got Emmett Till killed, like on her deathbed, she was like, I lied. He didn't actually whistle at me. That poor boy got fucking lynched for no reason. And it's yeah. just like it's there's a there's a catharsis and there's a a desire to be seen and forgiven and be wiped clean through the the mirror of other people, right? Yeah, or, may, or maybe not even necessarily forgiven, but just like whether you're forgiven or not, whether or not you get uh, the people react by fucking murdering you in the streets, mob style. Uh, it's just like getting that weight off this thing that's just like such a dark secret that you obviously would not want to tell anybody if you did it for fear yeah. of legal retribution and just being seen as a monster. But that like, it's so weighs down on you over the years that 
get, relieving that pressure in any way is a better alternative. What do you? What would you do if you, like, if instead of Gay Talese, Gerald Foos reached out to us to do a deep dive episode of Deep Cuts about oh, this mean, thing? I, like, what would you? What would your reaction be? I would immediately report it to the police. Like, well, I mean, that I, I probably wouldn't even get that far because. I mean, in all honesty, if somebody reached out to me with like like that, I wouldn't go. Like I would be, I'd be like, "Fuck that! I'm not going to your weird fucking secret dungeon and learning your dark secrets." That just seems like I'm going to get murdered. But if I did go and saw that, I would immediately report it to the police. Like, of course, I'd just be like, "Have a good day, man. See you in the funny papers," and then go out and then just immediately call the police. Yeah, it's also hard not to be intrigued by it, though. Like, I understand why this person's very compelling narrative has captured so many people's imaginations, right? Like, I don't quite know what to classify it as, but like this dude commits sex crimes, you know? Like, I don't I don't know how to classify watching other people fuck without their knowledge (laughs) under the pretense that you're not watching them. But that's that's like a sex crime. I don't know what it's called, but that's fucked up. Well, I mean, I'm pretty I mean, that yeah, there's something deeper there, but I, I mean, I mean, first and foremost is I think like voyeurism, like unconsenting voyeurism is illegal, I'm pretty sure. So there's that's the crime right there first and foremost. And then yeah, like yeah, there's you know, I'm sure that you could classify that in some way. Somebody the fact that you, you know, cuz somebody if somebody if somebody's in if you're in your own home and you're doing that and somebody spies on you, then that's illegal but it's you know it's just somebody spying on you but if they invite you into their facility under the pretense that you'll have privacy and then they spy on you so you're being viewed without your consent in a place where the person invited you into and gave you the illusion of privacy then yeah it's like uh, ocular ocular rape yeah something i was trying to think of like what i was was trying to think of like like privacy rape or something. I don't know. Yeah, something like that for sure. Like it's it's really fucked up. Like it's real. Yeah, I'm I'm not about it. But we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot more about this in a minute. I think it's fair that we can go to an act break right here and pick up this discussion very shortly. Act two, the New Yorker is classy, right? So Gay Talese and Gerald Foos start the process of making the years of files into a New Yorker piece. And then a novel pitch is also created and sold. Some of the stuff that Gerald says, quite frankly, just can't be substantiated. He's an unreliable narrator at best. One of the fact checkers responsible for collating and investigating many of Gerald Foos's more outlandish claims uncovers that Gerald bought the Manor Hotel in 1969, yet all of his his records say 1966. Not as nice. Not as nice. But it's the thing about- That's just just an awkward, like, what what are you even doing there? Well, the thing is, it's not even just like, it's not just that like, oh, he had like a line item spreadsheet where it just like listed 1969 at the top and he just like flipped it to make it 1966. Like, no, it's like- it's a journal where he refers to himself in the third person where there are daily entries of him observing people and each 
entry starts with a date and a time. You know, 1966, August 12th, 2.22 p.m. The voyeur watched this person go into this thing. That's It's really weird. He always refers to himself as in third person as the voyeur in these journals. Um, and I just don't buy for a second that he wrote three solid years of journals where he got all of the dates wrong that he owned this hotel for three years that he n- never owned it for like i just don't buy that i mean have you have you looked at the andrew wk and steve mike information site <laughs> no shit right no shit okay. gerald foos gerald foos is the creepy perverted andrew wk from the 1960s <laughs> except he, sing- he only sings songs about motels and voyeurism yeah <laughs> We watch what who's we gonna s- check in? Who's gonna check in? Who, 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 who? We're gonna check in. We're gonna check in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get some peeping started. Let's get some peeping started. Now we're gonna see you and you're gonna be fucking hard. <laughs> he shows up to the interview uh, with Gay Talese and he's just dressed in a all white with a giant like a uh, long-haired wig like andrew wk <laughs> maybe maybe the voyeur is andrew wk maybe that's why the voyeur finally came out you know yeah. it was like these are all the things because andrew wk is gonna steal my shtick i can feel it he's he's stolen my look <laughs> like this son of a bitch he's how, he dresses exactly like me how did he know yeah um so over the course of kind of selling this pitch for a novel, selling this um, this uh, New Yorker piece, and uh, and putting this all together as kind of a package deal, um, Gay Talese and Gerald Foos partner with some documentary filmmakers who are basically going to document this whole process, and they're going to make a documentary. <laughs> can you just be- can you believe like being business partners with just like the the H.H. Holmes of the 60s. Like, I mean, that's a little strong. He didn't murder anybody. But like, just this like, just this like, this criminal, like, sex pervert, cr- like, m- crazy person. And you're just going to like Netflix pitch meetings and being like, yeah, this is my buddy Gerald. Uh, we Do we have the pitch for you? <laughs> like, and just being in those meetings, the Netflix executives just being like, oh, yes, well, uh, um, of course, uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Talese and Mr. Foose. Um, really loved your pitch. Thought it was really impassioned. Um, I admire uh, the work that you've done with um, jerking off to unsuspecting couples. Uh, and we'll 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 call you. We'll we'll have our people call you. Yeah, it's just so. I don't know. It's just so unthinkable. But it also... It we'll, also gi- we'll give you a stand-up special right after Dave Chappelle's new one. Yeah. Um, let's let's watch this trailer for the documentary and then talk about the documentary just a, just a little bit. Since I first saw you I couldn't pull myself away It's opening with uh, silent photos and footage of the motel you. and people driving around this town and a door is opening and I received this letter in 1980. A man named Gerald Foose, who decided he wanted to buy a motel for the express purpose of using it to watch everything that was being done in private. 
It had a high-pitched roof. That's where I would build my observation platform. They couldn't hear me. They couldn't see me. That was exactly what I wanted. I'm writing a story about him for The New Yorker. I'm a natural person to write about a voyeur because as a writer, I'm a voyeur myself. Nobody ever will be able to do what I did. I mean, Foos is really disturbed, a sociopath who just needed the attention. I spent more than 25 years waiting to bring his story and him as a person into the public eye. If I knew what I was going to feel, I'd have never done this. Gerald Foos and I have a deal. That is, for me to tell the truth and him to live with it. Suddenly, this guy is forgetting what we've agreed to. I think Gay and I are going to have a real problem. What the hell does he think this is? Some kind of goddamn game? They're trying to expose you as a hypocrite. How do you know what they're thinking? So weird. The people are. If I had known this was a horrible crime, it's unforgivable. I would have never done this. Utterly riveting. So even 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 Mothman is just like we gonna fuck. Oh, actually, this is really ethically shady. I I can't be involved in this. See you guys later. The Mothman is like we gonna fuck in parentheses with full consent, not <laughs> go violating anyone's boundaries. We definitely want everyone to be comfortable and have uh, a good feeling and be safe at all times, and definitely not feel violated. I feel like I have to come forward and really be the speak truth to power for the we gonna fuck community and really <laughs> and really just the, dis- the, the, the WGFC <laughs> yeah the we the, gonna fuck community the, the association of the WGFC uh as and me as a representative representative of coming forward to uh distance ourselves from Gerald Foos and state that all we gonna fuck activities are fully consensual uh we do not we do not condone the unwitting voyeurism. Uh, if you want me to watch you fuck, I'll watch you fuck. But, <laughs> but I will be there the whole time just letting you know I'm over here. Yeah. I am in the room. I am watching you. And, and I am consenting to watch you as long as you are consenting to have me watch you. And as, a, as an extra measure to show that uh, the We Gonna Fuck Association is an ally... We are going to start implementing a uh, consent contract into all of our fucking activities. Uh, you have to verbally agree before, during, and after each We Gonna Fuck session. And we will also be donating to the organization of choice for the victims associated with uh, the unfortunate actions of Mr. Foose. Thank you very much. <laughs> and also, all the journalists in this press pit... We go. We go. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Let's let's talk about this documentary a little bit, and also talk about the fact that it's so clear that Gay Talese is the one putting this all together. You know, like there's there's a couple points in the documentary. We'll talk more about you know Gerald Foose and his moral rep- rep- reprehensibleness, but. There's a couple points where Gay Talese is very media savvy and very kind of on point. And you heard it in that trailer. There's a there's a point where one of the documentarians is interviewing them and they ask Gerald Foose a question 
about something that he had been previously pissed off at, at Gay Talese for. And they're asking him that with Gay Talese in the room to try and get a softer answer to make him look, you know, a little bit wishy-washy, like he's he's not committed to his ideals. And Gay Talese knows that that's exactly what's happening and gets really pissed off and is like, this isn't ethical journalism. You're you're setting this up to make him look a certain way. And Gerald Foose has no idea what's going on. He doesn't get it. He's an 80-year-old man who's just like, I've been hanging out with these documentary guys and they're like my friends. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of the weirdest setups for a documentary I've ever seen, ever. It's like, you've got like, you've you've it's it's funny because I, I talked to um as uh, i'm i'm i don't know if i'll say both so uh either you heard it in one of the q on episodes or it was part of an interview i did for the q on episodes that didn't make it into the show but i talked to will sommer the journalist about i basically asked him like what is it like to reach out to these figures these perpetrators of these crimes or just these people that are involved in these things like the QAnon movement or whatever it is and like get them to agree to be in your article or do an interview with you or be in, you know, a a video that you're doing or whatever. And, you know, in this dynamic where you are, you're not, you're not necessarily, you're trying to be objective, but you're certainly not painting it in a positive light. And there's no way that this person can think that, them participating in this thing is going to work out well for them. Uh, you know, what is it like to do that, to get these, to agree, get these people to agree to be in your thing, knowing that it's like about them and in, you know, painting it in somewhat of a negative light. Cause that just has always fascinated me. Like how do the, how the fuck do they, like, how did they get all those, all those people to be in the QAnon documentary and for all the people to be like, Nope, this isn't going to in any way turn out bad for me. Um, and this is the weirdest, craziest version of it of all time, because you have this story about this guy who did who was doing these ho- this he did this horrible thing that was like millions of crimes. There's like so many crimes involved in what he did, and then like they, there's a documentary about it. So you know, similar to the jinx, like like you could print it, you could compare it. I think most closely to the jinx, like this true crime documentary about this guy and a bunch of the things that he may or may not have done. And he's in it and he's involved in it, but he's like, you know, he's he's definitely adversarial within the documentary, like the 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 filmmaker who made the jinx. Um, he forms this relationship with them, but um, the, their 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 relationship is adversarial. He he agrees to talk sometimes, but then sometimes he's hiding from him and the guy's trying to track him down. And uh, eventually he ends up kind of like accidentally incriminating himself this thing where he goes into the bathroom with his wire still on and like spoilers. Uh, yeah. Well, the, he, the, it's like national news. Now he got convicted based solely on that piece of evidence. So I feel like if you look at the news, you've heard this, but spoilers, <laughs> but this is like, this isn't just like, Oh, we we're we're covered. We're, this guy is the subject of our documentary. Like this guy is like a producer. Like he's like involved in the production of it. It's so weird. All these people yeah. are just like, "Hey, uh, EP Gerald Foose, like, what do you what do you think about this setup here? You think the lighting looks good? Also, you're a maniac. Like, it's so fucking yeah. insane. Yeah, uh, the stuff that I feel like we should talk about with him is kind of like his character, his reactions to some of these things, and then also the things that he admits to, like from the jump. 
So basically, in the documentary, it's detailed, and in the article, and in the novel, uh, to differing levels of detail, it's it's kind of explained that, you know, Gerald Foose and his first wife bought this hotel. He built this observation platform. He watched copious amounts of people having sex. He also would just spend all night up there and just watch people like hanging out and watching TV. And his first wife would come and bring him sandwiches at like 2 a.m. and shit because he wouldn't leave. And like in the documentary, he's like, well, you know, you can only jerk off like so many times. And then you just like sit up there and watch people. And like he has this story of when he was a kid, his aunt who had very large breasts was changing and he saw her through a window and it changed his life. And he was just like, A, it defined his sexuality. He was really obsessed with big breasts from that point on and also with voyeurism. And also that aunt was a collector. She collected quilts and stuff, I think. And so he started collecting baseball cards and and um, sports paraphernalia and all these other kind of like strange things. So when they're in their house in Colorado in the documentary, like his whole basement is just stuff. It's just like millions of dollars of stuff. And he he claims like, oh yeah, this is a Mickey Mantle rookie card. It's worth a million dollars. And it's like, is it really? That's a I can see that it's it's graded at a 5.0. You're crawling around in fucking vents jerking off to people. Like Yeah. I'm not like, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take this to I'm gonna take this to get graded by a real professional. Yeah. Yeah. So like you know, he so he he admits to, you know, seeing all of these sex acts, observing all these people sometimes for months because he would get invested in their lives. And then he would like decrease their rent at the motel to keep them at the motel so he could keep watching them, which, again, I don't there's no that's not like a crime that's on the books, but that feels like a crime that feels like some sort of like weird indentured jerkitude or something like I, I don't know. First of all, love indentured jerkitude. Um but but uh, he was he was just he was just creating the proto big brother baby. He was just he was he was he was he was right there in the beginning. He was grassroots, but he was doing it before anybody else was doing it. He he envisioned our future voyeuristic reality television society, and he was like, "I that's where we're going. I'm going to create it right here in this hotel." It's and- true. Yeah, it's really fucked up. Yeah. And that's the other thing that's really interesting about it is that he never tried to tape anybody. It was always just him watching them and then writing these journal entries, which is so interesting because you would think that that type of person would be as soon as like personal camcorders came on the market or like 16 millimeter film cameras came on the market. He would be like, I must tape the people having the sex. Yeah, he could have started up a whole bootleg fucking underground market. Ugh, that's horrible. We go uh, oh wait! Did you hear that? Thought there was something like a sound that was coming from that the sounds like a, ceiling. That sounds like a that sounds like a really sad, balding, fat man committing crimes in the ceiling above us. Oh, oh, maybe I was just imagining it. All right, fuck. <laughs> so that's why he he finally told somebody. He's like, I saw Mothman. Like <laughs> I can't I can't keep this a secret anymore. Like I saw, I saw, um, I saw Mothman in an orgy with like twenty people. So the thing that I feel like, you know, the, the stuff that we've been talking about is they're like they are crimes, but they're not like grade A crimes, right? They're like these are RC Cola crimes, exactly. But at one point in the documentary, these are these are these are best choice crimes, 
Kroger brand crimes. Yeah. At one point in the documentary, though, Gerald Foose is telling a story about how he was renting out a room to a drug dealer, you know, a small time local drug dealer. And Gerald Foose's son was addicted to opioids at that point, And it like sent Gerald Foose off the deep end. And so when that drug dealer who was staying in the room with another woman who was helping him deal drugs left for the day, Gerald Foose went into the room, unscrewed a vent, took out all the drugs and flushed them. He went full Leo DiCaprio in Growing Pains on him? He went full Gerald Floosh. That doesn't really work. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't really work. Um, but he he you know, so he went in there and he flushed all of these drugs and then screwed the vent back on. Went back up into the observation deck, and that night when the drug dealer and this female companion came home, the drug dealer went to go check the stash, and it wasn't there, and he's like, it was you. You took the drugs. You sold the drugs. You stole the drugs. Fuck you. And he beat that woman to death. Oh, my God. He beat her to death. Jesus Christ. He beat her to death. And Gerald Foose, A, was responsible, but B watched it happen the whole time and never went down there to stop her. He never got out of his fucking pervert jerk-off nest and went down and just knocked on the door of the apartment to get the dude to not strangle this woman. There was a situation that Gerald directly caused. Yeah, and that's just like, that's true, uncut voyeurism. To just like you're watching this thing. You really are just a fly on the wall. You do not intervene in whatever way. Well, you kind of do because you, you, you cause this. But just to be just like that's got to take some massive disassociation to be like that much of a voyeur that you really are just like viewing it like it's a show on TV and you are not even going to like stop a murder from happening. So then basically the... The guy throws the woman on the floor and Gerald Foose claims that he saw her chest moving up and down. He claims that she, he thought she was alive. I don't believe that for a second, but that's what he claims in the documentary. He yeah. also at multiple points in the documentary talks about how, well, the statute of limitations on these things has probably run out. Like we, we, we're pretty sure that the statute of limitations has run out like for multiple things. So he's very like obviously aware of a, he's an unreliable narrator. B, he's aware that these are crimes. And C, is somebody who's trying to be, he's trying to sell a sensational story while also not implicating himself on something that is like going to be a guaranteed ticket to the fucking electrical chair. Yeah, you know which, what I mean? is like, which is like, why? Like, why? This is so, like, why would you even risk towing that line? Like, to come out and... Oh my god! It's like it's well, like. Why would those... you do the other stuff first? Why would you murder someone first? Yeah, but I'm like then... I'm, I'm talking about from the perspective of like somebody who has done these things. Like there, you know, there's that, that's it's a given that you know murdering people is bad, but there are still serial killers that do it and yeah, yeah. you know don't don't care. But in that in those shoes, like is is getting famous really worth like the gray area of like. I might say something that's going to get me sent to prison forever. Well, that's what's even crazier about it, right? So he witnesses this woman being brutally attacked. He says he thinks she survives, but then he goes back to his like management bungalow or whatever at the motel 
and doesn't call the cops. He doesn't call for help. Yeah. So he goes to sleep, gets up the next morning, and there's a knock on his door, and it's one of his employees, um, a maid, who has found this woman dead in the apartment and is like, yo, Mr. Gerald, like, there's a woman dead. And he has to then pretend that he doesn't know what just oh, happened. Oh, my stars and garters, a murdered woman. <laughs> I have just been, I've just received the shock of my life. I have never even heard about a dead woman. I didn't even know women could die. They're so innocent and beautiful. I assumed they just phased out of existence like a very sexy Obi-Wan. I thought that all any woman who who passed from this mortal coil just decided that her time was up and then just just uh, just faded the cross faded to a plate shot of an empty room. So then the cops come and he, Gerald Foose, this piece of shit, has to like, I don't know what happened here. Uh? And and this is where things get even crazy. I didn't even I didn't even know that women existed. I thought that men just reproduced by budding. <laughs> so then what's even crazier is like as this goes on and his unreliable narratorness unfurls and these dates get proven to be wrong, Gay Talese tries to verify that there was a dead body at the the motel that he owned. Because there's a date, there's a journal entry that says this is when it happened and a date. And he's like, okay, I know the town, I know the location, and I know the day. I should be able to look in police records and find a newspaper or a police report or some sort of documentation that this woman was beat to death. Nope. He didn't find anything, which again is like, is Gerald Foose lying about this? Did it happen a year later, three years later, two years later? Did it happen at all? Like, what the fuck is happening here? It could also have just been, you know, you. I mean, I, 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 I'm going out on a limb here, and I don't want to get canceled for saying this, but you have a famous drug, last words. Famous you have a, last words. You have a drug famous dealer. You have a drug dealer in a motel room with a woman. She's likely a sex worker, and even if she's not, even if she's just like a junkie or whatever, that you know, there, there, there are people who are regarded as the quote unquote less dead which are, you know, sex workers, drug addicts, people of color, particularly back in those days where, like, the police just did not give a fuck. And so there's a possibility that they just didn't file a report on it because they just didn't care because it was just some, you know, junkie dead in a hotel room or whatever, or motel yeah. room. Side note, The Lesser Dead is a good title for a 1960s procedural about a private detective who goes around trying to locate dead bodies of the types of in air quotes lower class people that are dead through sex trade and drug addiction um just saying powerful powerful log line add it to the list that pilot will never get written nope but it's but it's but Writing it's it it, it's enjoy it, it, it it's it's enjoy it's enjoyful to just think about it just imagine yep. it being written added it i literally added it to my list that will never get written so anyway, you know, those are the kind of like the bullet points of he he sees all of this sex and he documents all of it. He sees all of these kind of lower tiered crimes and he documents it. And then he sees this. He causes a murder. He murders someone and documents it. Murder somebody by voyeurism. Murder, yeah. murder by 
murder by uh, anonymity. And so he, you know, he owns this place for 30 years, right? He comes and goes. He's watching all of these people. And then he meets Gay Talese. They start writing this book together. They, well, they don't write together. Gay Talese writes it. But the interesting thing is like, why would you come But just imagine that though. Imagine they're in the office. Uh, Gerald Foose is sitting on the couch. He's tossing the football up and down. He's tossing the crumpled up papers into the little basketball hoop and and Gay is sitting at the at the typewriter. He's typing up and and Gerald's like, All right, so uh what if uh what if the lady survived? How's that how's that how's that sound? How's that feel? And and Gay's like, you know, you know, you know what you know what you know what bumps me about that though? You know what bumps me is uh you know, it's just not it's not believable because she did die and you did murder her by uh not notifying the authorities or interviewing intervening or or um in any way helping the situation that's that's the thing that bumps me about it i feel should like we take it to the room should we take it to the room yeah let's let's take it to the room they like get up you know they're casually having small talk walking down the the clean white pristine hallways of a culver city studio back lot they open a door and there's a room where it's 12 writers six on one side six on the other all wearing the exact same clothes and the six writers on the right are all they all have gerald foose's face and all six writers on the left all have gay talise's face and they're like so we're thinking about not killing the uh the drug dealer's female companion at the end of chapter 30 what do you what do you guys think and all of the gerald foose's goes yeah she should definitely live definitely live definitely live because, you know, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is not run out on that. And then the gay Talises on the other side are like, yeah, but you know what I'm bumping on? I'm just bumping on the who's going to believe that because that's not what happened. And she she did die and you murdered her. And, you know, this is real journalism. And then they all just look at each other and then they all just look at the camera at us. And then Mothman comes in and goes, we go fuck. And then it's it's all of the gay Talises having sex with each other <laughs> while all the Gerald Fooses sit back and watch. <laughs> now, is that 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 opens up an interesting question, though, because if if you're if you're in a room and you are in the middle of the room and you are jerking off by yourself and then there's like 10 Gerald Fooses sitting in the corners of the room watching you. Is that considered an orgy? I don't think so. Because I think what, that's considered because they're in, they're engaging in a sex act. That's the voyeurism is a is, is, a, is, a, is a fetish. Yeah, and, and it's part voyeurism is participation. Yeah, but I don't think it's an orgy just because I think that it actually has a more precise name. I believe the name of that is the um, the Foos Motel. Yeah. So. You guys want to run a Foos Motel? <laughs> yeah, I could go for a Foos Motel. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um. But so he, they're they're writing the you know they're writing all of this stuff and the the chronology of things that happen is they start filming the documentary they sell the project through Gay Talese's book agent then they set up this short condensed version of the book to be serialized in the New Yorker it'll be published in the New Yorker and then out of that will spin the full novel which was, I don't remember who published it but it was a big five publisher it was fucking Random House or Penguin or you know, whoever. This book is published by really random house. <laughs> so, but the interesting thing to me is like the whole third act of the documentary is kind of chronicling the fallout of everything that's happening. 
And when the New Yorker article comes out, Gerald Foose gets really, really pissed off at Gay Talese because Gay Talese attempts to provide insight into why would someone come forward? Why would someone corroborate and and cooperate in a book project about their own crimes, essentially? And Gay Talese offers the, the supposition that maybe the reason why Gerald Foose is co- co- cooperating is that he wants the notoriety to sell his baseball card collection. He has cards that are worth a million dollars. And so maybe the attention brought on him by this documentary short, you know, fiction, nonfiction and uh, book project will allow those to sell for exorbitant amounts of money. Oh, my and- God. He was like an early Logan Paul. <laughs> yeah. So Logan, yeah. Logan Paul, he goes, he does this thing in Japan where he records the hanging body in suicide forest and it's a huge controversy he gets a massive amount of backlash then he waits a little bit and then he's like gonna sell some pokemon card nfts motherfucker so there's a good chunk of the the third act of the movie where it's just like gerald foose being irate about that specific detail about gay talese referring to him as like somebody a who has money and b who is trying to sell baseball cards He's not pissed off that it's he's like he's a fucking sex criminal. He's pissed off about the fact that Gay Talese told people he has a lot of money in baseball cards, which is such a strange character detail. It's so weird. He also has this like bizarre moral piety where when the news starts getting out, he doesn't react in a way that you would anticipate. It's almost like he's so close to the 30 years of sex crimes that he has stopped seeing them as sex crimes. Mm-hmm. And so he gets really pissed when local news people are like, he's a fucking pervert. Look what he did. And he's like, I'm not a fucking pervert. And you're like, ah, you are. Like, literally. And it's funny because his second wife, who also has condoned all of this, which is like, how do you find two women who put up with that? Jesus. Honey, there's plenty I love of, you. <laughs> there's plenty of fish in the sea, but there's, there's only two who two fish in the sea who will uh, be fine with you uh, jerking off on other fish without their knowledge. Fucking surreal. But she like at multiple points has to be like, Gerald, what are you, what are you talking about? You are a pervert. Like, what do you, what did you think I, was going to happen? Why are you pissed off at this? I thought, I thought you knew that. He's like, what are you, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm, I'm not a pervert. I mean, you were married to me. It's like, yeah, I have a pervert fetish. I thought I was very clear <laughs> about this. I get off on being married to just a sociopath who is into depraved acts of sexual exploitation. Like it's the only way I can get off is if I know my husband is off somewhere in this world, just, just, just doing horrible depraved crimes against people without them knowing it. Like we, we, that's what my Tinder profile said. That was my whole pitch. It's it's so so fucking weird to me. It's so weird to me. I was I also just love the idea. <laughs> the idea is funny to me, of like, of like Gerald Foose just kind of being like, yeah, you know, we uh, I'm hanging out with my boy Gay. Uh, we're buddies. He, I told him about my whole thing, and he, you know, I was a little scared to tell him at first. I was a little nervous because, you know, <laughs> you know, a little. A little it's an acquired taste to you know learn about this like you never know how someone's gonna react to you telling them that you you have a, a jerk off 
uh, mind rape dungeon. But uh, he seemed okay with it. He seemed like he was down and we started hanging out more and he wanted to talk about it. We wanted to write this book about it. And, you know, he's my buddy. He's like my best friend. I'm going to just say that he's my best friend. And then and then gay is over here just like, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm just curious, you know, in in observing my subject, the voyeur, what drives uh, a maniac sociopath to admit his crimes to a journalist? And Gerald's just like, what the fuck, man? I thought we were cool. I thought we were buddies. And he's like, what? No, I mean, you no, joke. Of, of, Dude, of course. You, you, you joke, but he almost literally says that. Like there's a part in the documentary where he's talking to the documentary film crew about how pissed off he is at Gay Talese. And he's like, you know, we don't we don't really have friends like me and my wife. We don't really have friends. And like she's in the corner cooking or something. And she's like, you don't have friends. <laughs> oh, got him. Hashtag dunk. And he's like, you know, I uh, I don't really have friends. You know, we don't really, I don't really care about anybody. I don't really go anywhere. I just like being in my house. I like being around my baseball cards. I like my wife. She's a good person. And you know, I just like, you know, doing my own thing. And I really trusted Gay. And he really betrayed me when he talked about all how expensive my baseball cards are. People could break into my house and try and steal these baseball cards from me. They're worth a million dollars. And he could, he's just set me up to just look bad with these baseball cards. You guys would never do that. You guys are my friends. I don't even have any friends except for you guys. I just like hanging out with you guys. And it's like, Gerald, they're filming you admitting to crimes. What are you talking about? These are shark-eyed streaming service documentarian filmmakers. Like they would they would sell you down the river in a second if it meant the average time on site would go up by like three milliseconds. If, the, if your documentary could get like a million more downloads in a month, they would they would sacrifice their own babies on, a, on an altar. Yeah, it's really it's fascinating to see that these people, some some young, unfortunate woman was murdered on a road trip with her boyfriend. And within days of her murder being confirmed, we're already putting out podcasts about it. Like they will drink your blood. Uh, it's depressing to think about in those terms. Um, but yeah, it's it's very, very depressing. Um, so, you know, but that kind of covers the basics of just like what a surreally weird person he is and how he's kind of just lost in the forest of his own pervertity. <laughs> it's so weird. I was so the, I was hanging out with my buddy Gay. We were trading we were trading uh, locker room stories. Oh, you mean that uh, that clandestine meeting where you were admitting to me your years of crimes, and I was writing it down as part of my my article for the news, my expose on you. Yeah, and you know the the time when we were hanging out and just palling around and just trading stories, like you know the war stories from our past. It's like oh, I didn't. I didn't tell you any stories like, yeah, you told me that whole story about how you are, you know, you went around all these places and you're writing these stories about things. Yeah, it was I told you I'm a journalist and I kind of gave you my background and then I heard your horrible crimes and wrote them down and made a piece about them. And like I said, an expose about what a maniac you are. I thought we were just hanging. I thought we were I thought we were I thought we were friends. So the New York article comes out and it's almost kind of like a 
a trailer sort of for the for the full book um and people well they kind of lose their fucking mind understandably like they they flip the fuck out yeah i mean this is one of the this is one of like the the most carnal of fears that anybody could have like mm-hmm. there 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 are there are a handful of things that can trigger our fears and paranoias and anxieties as much as a story that's essentially like hey you know anytime you've ever been out in staying in a hotel room or like in a dressing room at a store there could have just been somebody watching you just behind the wall and not only could there have been but there definitely was because this happened yeah this guy literally did that just chilling and a roar motel owner watched his guests in some of the most intimate moments without them even even knowing this now this wasn't just once it went on for decades and it's all detailed in the new yorker magazine Denver 7 reporter lance hernandez is live in aurora this afternoon lance the hotel has been demolished but the former owner is still alive Adam, the old Manor House Motel stood right here at the corner of Colfax and Scranton across the street from the Anschutz Medical Campus. Now, in addition to all the sex that Gerald Foos claims he watched happen here, he said he saw a murder, but never told police. Acclaimed writer Gay Talese said he received a note from Foos in 1980 saying he purchased the motel to satisfy his voyeuristic tendencies. Foos detailed how it took months to foolproof the ceiling vents to perfection. After installing them, he hovered above in the attic and asked his wife to lie on the bed below to see if she could see him through the louvers. If she could, he would adjust them. Now, Foos apparently began watching guests in 1966. The New Yorker magazine article says between Thanksgiving and January of his first year, Foos observed 46 sex acts. He kept notes. They were very polite, very organized couple with male companion, he said about one threesome, who apparently took pictures. When asked about an invasion of privacy, Foos reportedly replied, there's no invasion of privacy if no one complains. Foos apparently considered what he was doing research. The article says that by the late 70s, Foos grew jaded about what he was seeing through the vents. He began writing about how he felt about himself and his infatuation as a young boy with his aunt. Now, Foos told the author that he didn't want to come forward until after the statute of limitations had expired. He's not answering his phone. He lives up in Brighton, but he told our partners at the Denver Post that he couldn't really say anything because he's under contract. And by the way, I checked with Aurora Police. They say they have no record of the homicide that Foos claims he witnessed here when the motel was here. Reporting live in Aurora, Lance Hernandez, Denver South. Why did they present that story with the tone of like, we're down here where a cat is stuck in a tree and the whole neighborhood's pitching in on trying to get it down. Like, why did it have that tone? He's, Welcome he's to like, Little Timmy's Lemonade Drive, where we're going to sell 25-cent cups on the site of horrific rape and murder charges. He's just, these two just, like, square-jawed uh, news anchors. Just like, now today's kooky story at five. Local interest. Check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like, my God. Like, it's not murder if the person doesn't see it coming. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> is that? What the fuck is that? In April of 2016, Steven Spielberg purchased the rights to create a film based on Foose's life with director Sam Mendes tapped to direct. 
The film was canceled, though, in November of 2016, after Spielberg and Mendez learned of the upcoming documentary feature about the same subject. We're, we're really, we're really, uh, really excited about this new project. You know, I've optioned the, uh, the life story of Mr. Foose, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to produce the film, and Sam Mendez is going to direct it. And I'm, I'm really thinking of it as like the terminal in a hotel. <laughs> we've, we've we've cast tom hanks he's gonna play gerald foose um diego luna is gonna play a uh, young hapless hotel goer with his his girlfriend uh zoe saldana and uh, i'm really excited about it wait what they made a what they've been shooting a what the motherfucker who optioned us this shit never thought to mention it to us he's playing all them back channels baby He's a voyeur yeah. of optioning. He's like in he's in the fucking shadows just being like, yeah, I optioned this shit. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to option this shit. You don't know about that, but you know about this. He's playing all sides. He's sneaking around in the Hollywood vents. In regard to the decision to cancel the film, Mendez expressed frustration that no one had advised them of the documentary's existence, but said it has so many things that are wonderful and can only be achieved by a documentary. The story became infinitely more interesting and more complicated, but impossible to tell in a narrative movie. The New Yorker article was expanded into a book of the same name. Concerning the book, author and critic Michelle Dean wrote, Shortly before the book appeared, the Washington Post, in an article by Paul Farhi, called Foose's veracity into question. The reporter pointed out that Foose hadn't owned the hotel for part of the time that he recorded the journals. Talese, confronted with this information, did nothing less than freak out. I'm not going to promote this book, he told Farhi. How dare I promote it if the credibility is down the toilet? So basically, they were like a few months away from publication. And this wa this Washington Post article came out where the Washington Post was like, hey, so you know that like Gerald Foose didn't own the Manor Hotel for Motel for like most of the time he says it, right? Like he says he sold it to his best friend in 1985 but he has all these journals about being there from like up until like 1995 like that's like most of the time right and gay talese was just like fuck this fuck gerald foos fuck all of this i've wasted 30 years of my life i'm not doing this anymore i sold it to my best friend merald moose hey oh my name is merald moose i have a mustache and an eye patch I just bought the hotel. Oh, so hey, Merald. Uh, I, I'm i sorry that I have to keep going off of the Zoom screen whenever you come on, but every time you come into the room, I have to take a piss. Oops, it's happening again. Oh, hey, it's me, Merald Moose. I'm back again. And I just want to say that I'm the one that owned the motel for most of the time. I was the one in, up in those ceiling rafters jerking off. Also, I'm going to go to space and never be heard from again. See you later. Oh, look, Gerald's coming back from the bathroom. Oh, hey. Oh, my God. Merrill <laughs> oh, Moose God. left forever. He's gone. And none of his crimes can be prosecuted because he disappeared from this earth. Oh, well. Yeah, it's uh, it's just so bullshit because basically like he so he lied about owning it for that last 15 or 20 years or whatever. And then Gay Talese kind of goes, fuck this. I'm not I'm going to disavow the book. It's not credible. Like I and it was like a couple months before 
you know, the book was released and he just like sank the book basically. But there's another twist in this. However, Gay Talese discovered that the person who had owned the hotel for that period was still alive. He contacted him and reported that that person said that Gerald had a key and complete access to the observation platform for that entire period. Therefore, Gay Talese stated that he had overreacted. Gerald Foose claimed that he had not brought this up because he didn't want to incorporate that other person's name into it and have it be connected to voyeurism. And so Gay Talese re-avowed the book. Hey, this is Merrill Moose calling from space. I just figured right before I jump into this wormhole and disappear into another dimension, I should just call and clarify that Gerald did have a key and he was in the motel every single day up there jerking off along with me. <laughs> All right, bye. Oh my God, aliens. <laughs> The Washington Post did an interview with you where they had found some inconsistencies in his story as far as the years he owned the hotel. Yeah. You even say in this the book, is Gay you can't vouch for um, everything. being interviewed he on Late said, Night with Seth Meyers about this whole mix-up of like being avowed, uh, being be, disavowing a book and then reavowing it. To call you out for getting facts wrong. Well, it might be self-serving the way I sound, but I'm not trying to be self-serving. The Washington Post is wrong. Uh, when I first got this news, I was broadsided. I mean, I'm, I'm 84 now, but most of my life, from the time I was 20, I was a very careful reporter. I'm still a careful reporter. And they said, the Washington Post said, that during a, a period, this guy this owned this motel for 37 years, for about six or seven, eight years, from 1980, that's when after I left him, until about 86 or so, he didn't own the motel. Meaning, how can you not own the motel and try to write about as if you're in the motel? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that. And I was very upset. And I said, well, I can't go along and support this book. But the next day, I called the guy who bought the motel from the motel guy that I knew. And he said, no, no. I, I bought, bought this motel from Gerald Foose, the guy. Mm -hmm. But I, he still had access to it. He had the key. And he had the key all the way through the owners. Then he rebought the motel in 86. If I had known that day I was told about this Washington, what I know now or what I knew the next day, I wouldn't have disavowed the book. That Got was a it. mistake in my part, but I overreacted. I was very angry and very embarrassed too because I took pride always in my life, a reliable reporter, that's what I am. And I wasn't what the Post said, but that's, that's don't, I don't blame the aggressiveness of reporters and trying to check the facts because we all try to do that. Well, I think that's important. I want to ask as well, you wrote an article uh, for Esquire called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. It got a, reprinted a bunch this year because it would have been his 100th birthday. Right. It is considered a, a turning point piece of journalism. You spent time uh, with the Sinatra camp and the Sinatra people. When you were working on this piece that sort of advented this new form of journalism, did you know it was going to be a piece that would live on as long as it has? No, no. I, I've written so many pieces and I never know what the public is going to like or remember. In my 65 years as a reporter, the only time I really enjoyed talking to someone, I know you don't have, you have a wonderful experience talking to everybody every night, and you love them all. Yes. I didn't love any of them, except <laughs> Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. And he affected my life. First of all, he'd done Lawrence of Arabia, mm -hmm. and I went to London, where he lived, to interview him, and he said, we have to go to Ireland. And have a... So he let me go with him to Ireland, and not that we drank all the time, we drank much of the time, uh -huh. but much of the time when we weren't drinking, so surprising, a superstar actor, great actor, he'd asked me about myself, and God, I'm the interviewer, no, he's interviewing me, and he said, uh, are you married? I said, yes, I'm married in 1959, I'm 
and I'm married to the same woman tonight, as of tonight. Um, I think, yeah, I'm going to get home, I have to check. But anyway, I, I, he said, you have any children? I said, no, we've been married four years. My wife is also a Catholic family, of, an Irish Catholic. And I, I said, no, I'm a reporter, I can't afford it. You can't afford it. No, I can't afford a child. You know, you're not a risk taker, are you? He said, I have a child, and I'm an actor. Well, I'm not, I'm not a risk taker. I just didn't think I could afford it. Well, why don't you just change and do it? Why don't you just do it? Nike commercial, just try it, do it. And he said, why don't you have your wife come over and stay with us? In London, my wife would be glad to have you as a guest. Stay. So I call my wife, Nantalise. I said, hey, Peter O'Toole, and his wife is Sean, uh, her, she was an actress as well, welcome us for a week. Fly. So she, Nan flew over, and we had this wonderful guest room. And during that six-day period, as the guest of Peter and Sean Phillips, who's the wife and actress, we conceived our first child. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Pamela was born in 64. Nine months after the Peter O'Toole invitation. And I think today he created my not being so much of a afraid of not having enough money. Well, that's why it breaks my heart. Oh my God. And then and then Peter O'Toole is up in the in the in the vents looking down and just being like, Oh, Gerald, this this was a good idea. The right good idea. I'm glad you told me about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, too, knowing that they had got married when he was like 19 or 20, whatever, because that also kind of makes sense on the on the thy neighbor's wife period of gay Talese, you know, like I feel like this episode is kind of it's it, it is equally about the observer and the observee, which is ironic because it, it it's about Gerald Gerald Ford and or Jesus. It's about Gerald uh, Foose and what a piece of shit he is. But it's also about Gay Talese and the type of person that would investigate that person and spend time with that person and really earn that person's trust. And also somebody who is very accomplished at knowing the back alleys of Hollywood and how to lie to Steven Spielberg to get him to option your book. Just not tell him that you've been making a fucking documentary for two years, you know? Like, we're just not going to mention that to Steven. We're just not going to, it's not going to come up. Yeah, it'll, it'll all work itself out. We'll, you know... We'll make the movie. We'll make the documentary. You know, they, they do that all the time. There's like there was that one year when there was those two magician movies that came out. There's like a year they put out like three Snow White movies in like the same week. Was like, that, there was that there was that thing where they made the Fox Catcher wrestling documentary and then the same guy made the Fox Catcher fiction film. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We could put the, we could put this documentary out in this movie out. We could put. We could put uh, the 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 Gerald Foose documentary and Terminal Two, Terminal, <laughs> Terminal Terminal Motel. Yeah, I was gonna say Terminal <laughs> Cancer, but yes. Uh, no, it's it's Terminal Two colon Terminal Motel. Yeah, we can we can totally do that. Yeah. Um. So that kind of brings us up till today. You know, it the book came out. It was a moderate success. They optioned the film rights. It looked like they were gonna make a movie. Then they canned the movie because the documentary came out. The documentary is available on Netflix. It's very interesting. It's very well made. Um, but it's positioned as Gerald Foose, shady fuckhead, and Gay Talese, literary journalist, where in reality, Gay Talese is just as shady. Yeah, I mean, because he, he went and like looked at this thing and didn't tell somebody. Yep. And also structured a film and TV deal off of it. Like, he's the one who was like, okay, we're going to make a documentary. We're going to make a film. We're going to make a 
a New Yorker article and I'm going to make a novel or a, a nonfiction book. We're going to do all of this at the same time. You know what it's it's like? It's like what the Warrens do with their in paranormal investigating stuff where they hire writers to adapt their own stories into novels and then get those novels turned into films and TV projects. Yeah, but it's, it's it, very it's kind of, it's it's worse though. I mean, cuz I mean, fucking Ed Warren was like a uh was like a pedophile who was doing something very terrible on the side, but in terms of their actual grift, like this is worse because he like he he is he is also a voyeur by the transitive property. He saw that this guy was doing this. He showed him that he had been doing it. He showed him how long he had been doing it, and then he just left and just never said anything about it. And yeah. wrote and wrote these articles about it and the books and eventually the documentary. And he's like on a press tour talking to Seth Meyers about it. It's like you in the back in the eighties or the nineties or whatever it was, you went and saw him doing this and you were just like, well, better keep that in my back pocket. I, yeah, I, I don't really know how you, I don't know what the line there is. Like, what's the line for, I mean, I'm not condoning what gay Talese did. I'm just for the sake of discussion. Like what is the line of knowing that something is a story, but also knowing that it's not above board. Like he also hung out with the Bonanno crime family for years. Yeah, but that, that, that even that's like different, and like even like what I was saying before about you know Gonzo journalism and uh, Hunter S. Thompson going and hanging out with the Hell's Angels and seeing them you know get into stabbings and all this stuff, and just any of these journalists that go into these like seedy underbellies and witness crimes and uh, re- report on them or whatever. Um, that's kind of one thing because you know people know that the that or the mafia has been largely kind of reformed, but. People knew that the mafia was a thing. They knew that these people were doing these things. It was it was something that people had knowledge of. And he went into this world and witnessed these things that people are aware of. And if there was something that could be done about it or that somebody or if there was something that something if there was something that could be done about it or something that people wanted to do about it, they had the knowledge and the equipment to do something about it. Like they could have stopped the Bonanno crime family if they wanted to or if they could there was clearly something holding them back whether it was that they just didn't have the resources and manpower to crack down on a mob family or maybe they just didn't want to because there was some corruption going on there there was some reason for that people were aware of the hell's angels the the cops knew about it they knew what they were doing they weren't stopping them for some reason I see what you're saying you're saying that there's a difference between the fact that there is a criminal enterprise happening that people can't necessarily prove beyond a shadow of a doubt in courtrooms, but that other people are aware that that is happening to this, where it's literally just Gerald Foose, his wife, and our boy, uh, Gigi Telsey. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a cute nickname for gay Talese. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was the only person that knew. So he was like the sole person who could have gone and told somebody about it at that time and brought yeah. this thing to light as uh, you know a crime yeah yeah i it's fascinating because you know that he would never have do that because it's a story you know yeah but but you're right that there is like some weird there is like these this gray area of where the line is what the morality of that is i mean that was that was that was um that was actually discussed recently whenever whenever bob woodward put out his book on trump um, recently and 
there was a a passage of it where he was talking about uh there's a there's a there's like a kind of a revelation in the book of a quote from Trump in an interview saying that he kind of acknowledging that he knew he was spreading misinformation about the um about election fraud that he was yeah. kind of doing it because he's basically saying like yeah you know I'm saying these things because it'll help me win if I say them like kind of acknowledging that he knew it wasn't true and that he was purposely misleading people he didn't say it that exactly but he said basically he said something that was kind of like interpreted as that whenever the book came out yeah. and so there was like kind of like a backlash where it was like you knew this and you had this quote from Donald Trump and you just waited until your book was published to show the world this revelation about the fact that Trump like admitted he was lying um and you know and the the response like Woodward's response is just like what are you talking about like I'm a journalist and I wrote this biography or this I wrote this book about this thing and the book came out when it came out and it had the information it had in it um and yeah there is like there is some kind of like where's the line of that like where 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 is it like where does it become your responsibility to like tell people because about the, these things because the, the 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 delineating factor is that books and specifically the way that traditional books are published is that it takes about two years to get a book published and the world you know 50 years ago that was perfectly fine you know that was the pace that the world moved at now you can send a tweet that can be read on the other side of the world the literally the millisecond after you hit send and so the world just moves at a very different pace and that i think is the delineating factor right of like I don't have the answer of where that gray area ends and where it becomes a moral imperative, but that's the you're you're reckoning with the old world way of doing things, which is the way that the levers of power have shored up the legitimate way to have a career and build a name for yourself and pay rent with the way that social media has just devoured the entire world. And now everything is free all the time. And everything is everywhere all the time. And we are all complicit in the destruction of the mechanisms that allow these benign entities to roll forward and theoretically disseminate knowledge in an institutionalized and protected way. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing because institutions can become corrupt and rot. Sometimes that's a good thing because we need people to double check that Gerald Foose actually did own the fucking motel or whatever, you know? Yeah, that's the yeah. other end of the that's the other side of the coin where it's like people were freaking out about on Woodward about not putting this out. But it's like, you know, what if what if he had just impulsively tweeted that information and then like maybe he misheard him or maybe he lied and that wasn't the quote that he said or, you know, mm -hmm, the, the, mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it's worth verifying things and going through and being methodical about making sure that the thing that you're claiming is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, is an interesting place to kind of put our, our summary thoughts in on this episode. I think for me, my, my kind of takeaway from this is one, it's a fascinating human interest story. It's riveting to look at Gerald Foose and these, this bizarre fucked up ecosystem of his two wives, the motel, the people that have stayed there, the crimes that happened there. But it's also just profoundly sad. And I don't believe for a second that Gerald Foose did all of this because he saw his aunt naked when he was 10. Like there's there's so much 
more fucked up shit going on inside that person. And I'm not even necessarily convinced that the 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 aspects of the story that, you know, are more outlandish even really happened in the way that he says they happened. That murder was never substantiated. No one ever definitively proved that it happened there. You know, I, I'm the fact that the dates are wrong by three years. The fact that Gerald Foose just seems like a weird God complex dude who has this inflated sense of moral piety. It's just very strange. Like everything about it is strange. And that's why it's compelling. But that's also why I don't necessarily believe all of it. But it's a very interesting kind of thought exercise of like, how do we treat these types of people? Because he's definitely not the only person who's ever done this. Like there's, you know, celebrities who've, was it Little Richard who filmed women in bathrooms no, no who was that we've already had this conversation you've already tried to spread this misinformation oh, on the was show that not before real? dave i don't, rem- I no, don't remember was that no it was it, it, it's so funny because you said this exact same thing on a, God pre- damn it. On a previous I'm sorry episode. i'm uh, sorry i'm sorry no it was it was not little richard it was chuck berry who oh, was chuck had berry. cameras inside of uh had cameras inside of a bathroom in a restaurant that he owned Right. I'm sorry. I apologize to the state of Little Richard. Don't you besmirch all... Little Richard's name. He was sorry. an angel who, because of some kind of self-hatred, condemned homosexuality and was a big part of like pu- pushing this narrative that being gay is a sin, but otherwise a perfect angel. I'm joking about I... I'm joking about that. Of course, that's a really fucked up thing and it's a huge problematic uh, mark on his legacy. Copy that. Copy that. Um, I apologize. I'm not as big a Little Richard fan as you and I apparently have forgotten that it was not him and it was Chuck Berry. This is the second time. I'm sorry. Um, But like, you know, there's there's been cases of people doing stuff like this before. Um, So it's obviously something that humans like and are fascinated by. Um, And also like and also like low key, our culture like condones it. Like there's a whole fucking film series that's just about how zany the hijinks of surveilling women without their knowledge is yeah uh, the the porkies movies and even in even the revenge of the nerds movies like they have the they, they put the cameras inside of the inside of the uh the omega or no they 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 put the cameras inside of the uh, the other the female uh the what, what the fuck is the female version of a fraternity called sorority sorority yes yes they, they put the cameras inside the sorority and then they're watching them on their TV in their in their frat house, like it's just like they're just sitting there on the couch watching it, and that's just like these zany kids. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I just, I just find it incredible. I just the the thing that's most surreal to me about it is just the 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 lack of separation between the the story and its cultural existence and the guy, like the fact that he's just walking around, just being like, yeah. I was in that roof jerking off to those people. I saw a murder. Uh, where's your bathroom, Mr. Netflix? Like, like that's just so fucking surreal to me that he's just like walking around just like a normal dude openly admitting to these things. And just like everyone's just like, yeah, there's that guy. He's he's here. He's just a he's a figure that that's just so surreal to me. I'm Dave Baker and I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me on the internet, you can do so at xdavebaker, x on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, or at heydavebaker.com, where you can find my books 
Everyone is Tulip, Action Hospital, Fuck Off Squad, Night Hunters, all kinds of good stuff. Andrew Price, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me in, in the... Don't, 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 <laughs> don't. Like, this, this, this template for how I do my outros, like, this, this is the perfect setup for it. Like what? Like what do you expect me to do? All right, fine, do it. Uh, no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna subvert it. You can find me in a hotel room, just covered in the writhing flesh of a of just a a swinging coke filled '80s orgy, and being the only one in the room because of my particular attentiveness and observation skills that a lot of pe- other people don't have. Noticing that I feel like there's a little bit of a weird sound coming from the ceiling. What is that? Eh, probably nothing. We gon' fuck. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also get some Deep Cuts merch if you go to our shop. Just go to deepcutspod.com. Click on the shop or you can go to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch. Check out our shirts our hats with cool deep cuts graphics on them. You can get our mystery treehouse junior sleuth patch by going to deepcutspod.com. It's on the front page. Uh, you too can be a junior sleuth. Um, you can join us in our Facebook group. Uh, just search the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. We talk about the episodes. We talk about other cool stuff. Meme chefs post their memes. Uh, it's a cool little community where we talk about the show and other things. Uh, you can also join our Discord server. You can go to bitly.com slash Discord. It's another cool community where we talk about episodes. We talk about movies, TV shows, music. Uh, people post memes there. There's a lot more kind of like specific channels to talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, follow us on Facebook or Instagram, Deep Cuts Podcast or Deep Cuts Pod. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.